Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The comedian on today's show is better than pretty much anyone else I've ever seen at finding humor in her anxiety. And you know, sometimes when you tell people you have anxiety, they're always like, well, you know, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. It's like, okay, have you checked out some of fear's work? <laughs> like pretty much churning out solid gold hits, <laughs> making some great points, rarely misfires. And like, if you don't have anxiety, the way I would describe it is like there's an edgy improv group in your brain. And it just needs like a one word suggestion. To spin like countless scenarios that no one's comfortable with. Like the whole time you're just like, when will this show be over? I just came to be supportive. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Aparna Nanchurla sharing just a small glimpse of what it's like to live inside her head. Aparna has made a career out of talking about anxiety, depression, and other mental health struggles on stage, something she admits to me she has somewhat conflicted feelings about now. It's a theme that has also popped up throughout her acting work on live-action shows like The Underappreciated Corporate and beloved animated hits like BoJack Horseman and Bob's Burgers. Now, she has brought her unique voice and sensibility to Comedy Central's new culture war cartoon, Fairview. In this episode, Aparna opens up about her struggles with imposter syndrome, why she finally stopped apologizing for herself at the beginning of her stand-up sets, and a lot more. She is such a funny, smart, and insightful comedian, so I think you are really going to enjoy this conversation. Here's me with Aparna Nancherla. Well, uh, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on in general in life? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is going on? I, I mean, I think like most people, I feel like the my conception of time has really melted, so... I'm like, what has been happening in this last blob of existence? I, uh, yeah, I have been doing a lot more voiceover work and I've been working on a book. So I think both of those are kind of weirdly like showbiz activities that you can do in a, in a sort of cave. They're pandemic <laughs> friendly. Is that, is that good for you? Do you prefer uh, cave work versus uh, out in the world? Well, I think it's a tricky balance because I think my, there's definitely a strong introvert in me who's like, yes, less people, more cave, more uh, <laughs> solitude. But then it's a slippery slope before I'm like, I'm alone in the world and yeah. <laughs> I need human contact. Yeah, I did see uh, you had some human contact not long ago. I saw on, um, I believe it was on Instagram that you had a little uh, totally biased reunion in, uh, in Jackson Heights, Queens with uh, two of... Uh, former guests on this podcast who I'm a uh, big fans of W. Kamau Bell and Hari Kondabolu. That's um, right. You guys we, all got together. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was under the guise of work as, as you've got to monetize every opportunity. So Kamau uh, for his CNN show is doing, you know, uh, a topic. I don't know if I'm allowed to say what it is before it comes out, but it basically, we did an interview, the three of us together for it. And we realized, well, I I see Hari more regularly. We live in the same neighborhood. But Kamau, I think we realized we hadn't seen each other in uh, maybe 10 years, close to oh, 10 really? years. Yeah, it really was a reunion. It was like a the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion <laughs> of our own. Yeah, I hadn't really realized that that was that his show, Totally Biased, was that was kind of like your first real TV gig, right? For writing and it performing. Yeah, both writing and on-air stuff. Yeah, it was sort of the 
my leap into employment in, in entertainment. Yeah. How long had you been doing comedy at that point when you got that opportunity? I had been doing it for a while because I started in DC. So I think maybe that was 2012. So I think I had started maybe six years earlier. So I'd been doing comedy about six years. Yeah. So was that a big deal when you got that job on that show? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it, it is. I know not everyone has like one big break necessarily that cements their career. But for me, it definitely was like the transition from being a temp during the day and doing stand-up shows at night to doing comedy full-time and like having that coveted writer's guild insurance and yeah yeah (laughs) so I think in in many ways it felt like a big break and also just in getting like a lot a lot of the reason that I got my foot in the door there was just because I had friends who worked at the show who vouched for me in addition to like writing a packet, which, you know, hate to add to the lore that it's who you know, but it definitely helped (laughs) that I knew people who worked there and getting to have a first job where I like worked with friends. I definitely felt very lucky. Yeah. I mean, that was a really special show that I think probably didn't get all the attention and, uh, you know, love that it deserved. And it was kind of ahead of its time in a way because there weren't now they're like a million late night shows and late night is so much more diverse than it used to be. But that was kind of a a pioneering show in that sense, right? Yeah. Like I think it put things that came on the scene after it, like it gave them a little bit more room to be themselves without having to explain what they were trying to do. But I think I agree, like at, at its time, maybe not everyone quite knew what to make of it or what it was. And it is nice to, to be categorized as like ahead of your time, but then at the time <laughs> that you do it, it feels a little dicier because you're like, why doesn't anyone understand what we're doing? Yeah, um, I feel like it gave the show gave um, and Kamau gave all of you guys and the writers and the, um, you know, on air kind of correspondence a chance to put your own opinions out there, kind of put your own um, point of view on TV. Was that something that appealed to you? And were there things that you were able to do on that show that that you remember fondly in terms of issues you got to talk about or or things you got to put on TV that maybe hadn't been on TV before? Yeah, I mean, I think I was even nervous. I remember when I got hired of that it was kind of a political show and like Kamau and Hari are pretty strongly politically politically forward in their acts. And I didn't necessarily feel like I was bringing that to the table. So I wasn't sure what I was there to <laughs> add necessarily. But I think I remember Kamau telling me that it's just like, just by virtue of what you do, you're kind of making a political statement that you're like a woman of color and you're not kind of, that's not necessarily your whole deal or what you're leading with. And I think that made me think about identity in a different way that you can be making a political statement without necessarily saying I'm making a political statement or I'm going to talk about my politics like front and center where I kind of started to do it in a more covert way or like a more subversive way of making commentary on things, but not necessarily like making the whole bit about that issue. Was there an example of anything that you did on the show or that you talked about that you feel like fits that bill? Well, I think I did a lot of just like quirky offbeat things. Like I think I did um, briefly a segment. I think it was supposed to be recurring, but I only did it once. Uh, This is the nature of late night TV, but it was like something on like the marijuana report or something. And I think I was supposed to report on it because I seemed like very unlikely to be like the (laughs) pothead of the show. So I think it was sort of just being able to come at things sideways where it's like, oh, you wouldn't necessarily put this person in this box in your head, but here they are showing up regardless. And do you f- do you feel like that bled over into your stand-up at all in terms of using having a more of a political bent or putting any of those ideas into what you were bringing to stand-up? Yeah, I think it definitely made me want to be just more open about who I was in my act. Not that I hadn't been before, but I think I before I maybe hit a little bit more like what my politics were or where I fell on certain things. And and after that, I think I was a lot less like I didn't feel like I needed to be shy or like worry about making people feel comfortable. Like I was and and weirdly that was like a few years before the 2016 election, which I think made everyone kind of be like, why haven't we been more 
like vocal about how we feel and like what is important. Yeah. Um, so at some point I know you moved over or you, you moved on to, uh, right for Seth Meyers show. Um, mm-hmm. I guess that was in 2015. That was after, um, totally biased had ended. Yes. And I think that was, that was a similar thing where I, I got hired and I was, I was also a little bit like, I'm not sure like what I'm bringing, bringing to the mix because I think they, he did have a pretty diverse writing staff and with his show, it was a little bit more, uh, divided in terms of like you either primarily worked on monologue or you were a sketch writer. And I started on monologue, whereas at Kamau, it was a little bit more mixed. Like everyone did a little bit of everything. Um, so I think it was like a little more daunting trying to fit into this more, um, stratified system, but I will say, I think Seth was similar to Kamau in that he really wanted his writers to also have the opportunity to be on the show and kind of bring to light uh, things that they wanted to talk about. I wasn't there as long just because I think I had already started to get the feeling that maybe late night wasn't necessarily like what I was most passionate about. I think there is a certain personality that does really well in that environment where it is like just a very, there's a kind of grind to absorbing the news and then turning it into comedy in a pretty timely. Yeah, it seems, it seems like a really hard job in a lot of ways, especially writing, you know, monologue jokes day after day. It's just like every day it starts over again and you have yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for some people that is like, they find a real satisfaction in that like reset. But I think I'm, I think my mind doesn't necessarily work that way. Like I kind of, I have that boiled thing that stand-ups have sometimes where I'm like, I write like as I feel inspired to, not like I'm not a slave to the clock. Yeah. Um, Was it also odd, you know, writing for someone else? Um, Because, I mean, I guess maybe you did a little bit of that on Totally Biased, but then, you know, writing for someone like Seth Meyers, um, you know, who maybe has a different point of view than you in some ways, or, you know, it's just a different person. Yeah. And I think that is one thing I took away from both shows where I realized like, ultimately, like, and this is probably true of a lot of people, but I do have kind of such a specific way of looking at things that whenever I try to write for other people, it still comes out like as a version of myself, like trying to be that person. And it's harder for me to just completely like be like, become that person's voice. So a lot of learning to write for other people became trying to find the halfway point between my sensibility and like something they would actually say. But I think a lot of times they'd be like, I know when it's an Aparna joke. <laughs> it just <laughs> still sounds like Aparna. By the time you left that show late night, I mean, were you then, I imagine you were able to support yourself, you know, as a, as a comedian um, and, you know, maybe didn't need that uh, day that like comedy day job in the same way or, or did you? Yeah. I mean, I think there was a period in between totally biased and Seth Meyers where I wasn't really sure where my next gig was coming from. I had gotten some short term things, but I wasn't, I didn't have like another longer term opportunity on the radar. And that was, uh, I think that was like a pretty hard period at the time because you have the idea in the back of your mind that like you get your first job and you're kind of just set. And I think there isn't a lot of talk in the industry about the fact that there is, there are periods of struggle even after in the eyes of most people you quote unquote made it or like you're good. Like you you don't always necessarily know where your next work is coming from or like it might not line up neatly with like this job ends and then this one starts. Like some people do, seem to be very good at just like having something going at all times. But I remember there was a period when Totally Bias ended uh, before Seth Meyers started where I really was like, I think I was on unemployment and I was like, should I start temping again? Like, I think (laughs) I had to, like, it felt like a little bit of a failure, but then at the same time I was like, what else? Like I had to do something. Yeah. Um, and then after, after you left, uh, Seth Meyers, what was the next kind of thing where you then really focused on stand up, or what was the, what was kind of your, your next thing from there? I think stand up became like, I think I recorded an album shortly after I left and I also, and a half hour for comedy central. And then I think just like some acting stuff started picking up a little bit more. So that's another thing where if you have like a full-time gig writing for a show or something, you, your ability to say yes to other jobs is a little more diminished. So it, it was like easier to then say yes to these other opportunities that started cropping up. And I just realized that I liked kind of 
you know, getting to play little funny parts on shows or just like touring with stand up. Like I wanted to at least try it. Now in hindsight, I'm like, I don't think I'm someone who can like be on the road all the time. Like yeah, I don't think I'm built a, for that. <laughs> it's a it's difficult just, life. Yeah. It's its own speed. And especially as you get older, it can, it can be hard, but I did at least wanted, wanted to see what that life was like. Um, in terms of acting, I know one of the things I just loved you on was uh, Corporate, um, which I feel like oh, is a thanks. really funny, underrated show that probably, again, not enough people <laughs> saw. <laughs> that's, that's my specialty. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was kind of, that was like your first regular TV role, right? Where you were sort of part of the cast and, and really on the show. Yeah. And again, I was very fortunate in that like friends of mine created the show and uh, two of them were the stars of the show and one of them was a director and they, you know, had me come in and read for this part. And I think a lot of the reason why I got it was because we had like a pre-existing friendship and we could like build on that in, in terms of like making the role like something specific to me. Um, but that show did feel really special in that it was like getting to work on something with friends who I like respected. And I just thought the show was really brilliant. And I, I agree with you though. It may sound more biased coming from me that, that it was like very underrated and, and underappreciated, but yeah, I really felt, um, it felt surreal to be part of something that I like just thought was so good. Cause I, I don't think you can say that about all the jobs you get. Who blew the whistle on me, Grace? Who's the rat? Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Telling you would violate my oath as an administrator of human resources, and I would never do that. For less than $20. There. Now, who was it? It was me. Grace, why? Because you're creating a ton of work for me. You blew the whistle on 23 people yesterday. Well, I'm sorry for exposing the truth like Edward Snowden. Please, you are nothing like Edward Snowden. You lack his bravery, his integrity, his raw sexuality. God, he's so hot. God, he's so hot. I just want to lick his glasses. I'm hacking to his mainframe. I just want to spoon him in the cold Russian night. Anyway, this company does reprehensible things every day. If you actually care, find a real problem to blow the whistle on. Okay, but what if I don't actually care? So you mentioned your Comedy Central half hour, um, and then I think probably an even bigger, um, you know, step up was the the stand ups on Netflix in mm -hmm. 2018, which I've talked to now a bunch of people who have had these half hour specials, um, including uh, Naomi Ekparrigan was just on at the beginning of the year, and yeah. she was she was singing your praises on the show, um, and oh, working with you on Search Party. And <laughs> I was gonna say. I was ready to sing her praises because I got to go to her taping and uh, I, I mean, I already think she's just phenomenal, but yeah, it was really cool to get to see her, see other people, like see how great she is. But that series, the standups, it seems like has just been really successful, you know, for Netflix, but mostly, but for the comedians who are on it oh, um, yeah. in terms of reaching this new big, bigger audience than I, I imagine that's probably the biggest audience you've ever had is on that series. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think exposure wise, like I think it probably is the equivalent of what late night used to be for a lot of comedians yeah. where it's like oh, overnight you would your whole career would change. Like just the level of exposure is like unlike anything else. I mean, I don't I don't know if Netflix is now better about like giving I know they're pretty cloistered about letting people know what the numbers are, but it does feel like especially during the pandemic, like it would just be like everyone would be watching whatever just came out, which just feels surreal. It feels like when there were only four channels on or something. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Did you feel like you knew going in that it was going to be this, you know, reaching this huge audience and that it was a big deal um, before you did it? I think I was in denial a little bit because <laughs> I think I was just too anxious to be able to be like, this is it. This is your shot. But I did, I did realize I was like, I do think this is going to be a level of exposure that um you haven't had before but I think you also yeah you want I think I don't know if everyone's like this but I'm like I think the number one lesson I've learned from being in this industry is curb your expectations <laughs> yeah because just because you never know what's gonna hit and what's not yeah and I think you know there are shows that I think are really good and for whatever reason they just don't get 
the attention because they hit, they like didn't like whatever the timing wasn't right or something. And then something else will like really take off and you'll be like, I didn't even like it that much. So it's, there's just some of it that's out of your control. So I try to remember that it's more just like, what can I get out of this experience? That's more like within my control to enjoy or like find fulfilling. I mean, easier said than done, but yeah. Um, I love the bit in that special about um, anxiety, which is a, a, a topic that you talk about <laughs> a lot um, on stage. And you talk about how um, this was in, I guess, 2018. It was kind of like halfway through Trump time and uh, how anxiety is finally on message and, you know, saying this is what we trained for. I am someone who has a lot of anxiety and it is weird that anxiety is finally on message. Like if you're an anxious person, it's kind of like, well, you know, this is what we trained for. Like this is, this is our Olympics. It's like all those nights awake, like it's showtime, you know, all the scenarios at once. And it was just so funny to watch it now because I feel like it, things have gotten so much worse since, uh, <laughs> since know. you, since you did that bit. I know. I feel like if anything, the bit has gotten more timely, which is like, you never think that will happen with a stand-up bit, but you're, I'm like, I should have come up with that now. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is, it is strange to, it's strange how much people relate to it, like the worst things become, <laughs> which you're like, I'm sorry, but also <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I feel like you, you and, you know, probably other comedians as well have normalized talking about anxiety in a way that, that we maybe, you know, didn't for a while. Do you, do you feel that in the, you know, response from fans or from the way, you know, interactions with people who maybe are getting something important out of what you're, what you're saying on stage? Yeah. I mean, for honestly, when I started talking about it, I didn't even think I was doing anything that like, you know, out of left field or groundbreaking because I had, I had watched comedians like Maria Bamford and Mark Maron and Patton Oswalt and they, they had all been pretty forthright with their struggles with mental health. I think maybe just by virtue of being like a woman of color or something, it was maybe coming at it from a new direction. But I do agree that like, since I have started talking about it, it's definitely feel like it's just kind of blown up as like our willingness to discuss it as a culture. And I mean, I will say to some, not that I would ever say having these conversations is not valid, but there is a strange way mental health has been almost like become trendy to talk about yeah. on social media. Is that, that, is that, that weird I, for you? I mean, is that, does that yeah, seem wrong like in I some ways? I, yeah. Like I think I have a tough time sometimes with just the way it's been commodified where I'm like, is, are we getting value about like this or is this like an opportunity to sell another mug? It's like, I'm nervous. Well, yeah, I feel like I, I really appreciate it and I, I get a lot out of it and relate to it. Um, you know, thinking about another bit of yours, um, uh, I think you did this one on Colbert where you're talking about, um, you know, sighing in public. I actually recently started a new medication. My old ones stopped working. They unionized, so I'm happy for them. But <laughs> I'm glad the new ones work because I was turning into someone who was a bit much. Like I was sighing a lot in public. I realize sighing is sort of the emotional equivalent of a sneeze. Like, it changes the tone of the environment you're in. It feels like it should be addressed in some way afterwards. Like, I sighed heavily recently in a crowded waiting room, and everyone just looked at me like, great, I remember death too. You know, it just felt, <laughs> felt very rude. <laughs> that one really got me. Um, but yeah, I think I've... I've as as someone who also experiences anxiety, I find it very, uh, you know, relatable. And it's, I think it, there's something, what, hearing someone else talk about it in a public way um, is helpful. Do you feel like it's helpful for you to talk about it? Does it make you less anxious to talk about anxiety? I, I mean, I'm going to be controversial and say, like, I think the more I talk about anxiety, sometimes the worse it makes it feel like anxiety <laughs> oh, really? feels like, well, to me, not necessarily on stage or like in a joke format, but like just the sometimes the more I just like feed on my anxiety, the more it like feeds off of me. Like it almost like the more airtime I give it in my life, the more airtime it seems to think it has in my brain, the way, you know, if you become friends with someone and you like spend more time with them, they're going to be like, we're better friends than 
the person you spend less time with. But then weirdly, <laughs> depression, I feel the opposite, where the more I talk about it, like it feels like less isolating. It's yeah, I don't know why they work kind of against each other. But not I'm not saying I should talk less about it. But I have to just be careful about how much I'm letting it take ownership over me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or like no, lead the sense. conversation. Yeah. The other thing that, you know, watching some of your, watching a bunch of your stand up from over the years um, that I noticed is there is a, there, especially earlier on, I think you used a lot of self deprecation on stage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it made me think of, um, you know, this, this is something that kind of came up with uh, Hannah Gatsby a few years ago, where she started talking a lot about how she wasn't going to, she used to do it. She wasn't going to do it anymore. Um, she felt it was harmful in some way. Um, you know, I know you used to open with a line. Um, I'm surprised I'm a comedian too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, which kind of plays into that. Um, what did that mean to you? Why do you think you did that? And is that something you've thought about differently? Um, you know, as, as time's gone on. Definitely. I think when I started, it was almost a way because I think when I started, there was other, you know, comedians in, marginalized groups for sure on the scene, but maybe they weren't having the moment they're having now where people really are, are like making a stand to have other stories told. And I think the internet just democratized things in a way of, of some of those voices coming more forward. But I think when I started, there was still this idea. I mean, I started in DC and not that it's like a homogenous town, but I think like many stand-up scenes, it's still dominated by men and primarily straight white men. And so I think there was a way where if you didn't fit into that box, you had to kind of be like, here's my deal. Like before you could even like get into your material, you sort of have to explain yourself to the audience. And I didn't really want to dwell on it. So I was like, what's the most concise way <laughs> yeah. I can get this over with? But I think you're right. Like in the years since I'm like, why do I feel like I have to apologize for where I, who I am or kind of like spoon feed myself to a group? Like it feels like now people sort of have the ability to start in the middle of the conversation where they're like, we're already here. Like this is, all, you don't need me to explain who I am to you. Yeah, and, maybe audiences yeah. are more savvy about comedy mm -hmm. now anyway, because comedy is so huge and, and, and all of that. Um, yeah, I think a lot of comedians would and probably still do make some comment about their appearance when they first get right. on stage. I mean, it's also, yeah, I think it's also like Comedy 101, like, I know what I look like. And the, yeah, yeah, it's like an immediate way to connect. Do you feel like you did consciously stop doing some of that stuff at a, at a certain point? And was there a you know decision to do that or yeah I think so I think I just was like this is not fun for me to write or say anymore and I don't even know if audiences don't I mean I think there is like a savviness now where they're sort of like eh, we don't need to hear that but I think also my interest in telling it maybe comes across as lower so it just doesn't play as well when I try to go in that direction because it's clear that I'm like not into it anymore. Coming up, Aparna talks about her incredible animation voiceover work from her emotional scenes as Bojack Horseman's estranged daughter Hollyhock to her latest role on the Comedy Central series Fairview. And later, I ask her to weigh in on the big debate over Joe Rogan and what a comedian's real, quote, job is ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our conversations with other stand-up comedy stars like Patton Oswalt, Maria Bamford, Gary Goleman, Tig Notaro, and everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Aparna Nanchurla. The other lane of your career that I wanted to talk a little bit about is um, the Im- very impressive voice acting work you've done over many oh, years, um, you know, including on this new show, uh, Fairview, that you're on. Yeah, I, I talked to, I had Kristen Shaw on the podcast uh, a little while ago, and she was talked a lot about how she kind of turned a voice that she didn't always love into this incredible career for her, um, you know, on Bob's Burgers. And then uh, also we talked a lot about BoJack Horseman, which is a show that you're on as well. And I I love your, your performance on that show. Um, Do you relate to that at all in terms of, you know, using your voice um, in, in different ways or kind of turning, turning your voice into an asset? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if she felt this way, but I think I have always been such a, internal person that I didn't even realize my voice was like different to people or like unique <laughs> until other people pointed it out to me. And then they, they were always like, you, you should do voiceover. And then I kind of just, you know, asked, started to ask my manager and agent, like, Oh, could I, could you maybe submit me for more voiceover stuff? Um, like I didn't even know where to start with it. And I think Bojack, uh, I mean, obviously, Raphael is very good at, on being on the pulse of like who's who in the comedy scene. But they reached out to me about playing Hollyhock, and I think it was just like very surreal because I was like, "Why? Do, how do they even know who I am?" And like, like, why did they think I could even do this? But I, yeah, I think something about maybe my sensibility combined with my voice. They were like, "Yeah, this seems like the right fit for this character." But it really, it was a very unpredicted like career opportunity were you a fan of that show before you uh joined it Bojack? i was but i had i hadn't like seen everything before i was on the show so i like sort of caught up after the fact and yeah i think it just i was like i can't believe i get to do this because it is so it's such a like uniquely amazing like dark show but also very funny which is hard to pull off yeah i think it's like it's for a lot of comedians it seems like it's some of the best acting work that they get to do is on this very weird animated show you know i talked to paul f Tompkins about it a long time ago and i think you know he's so funny and does all these characters but then all of a sudden he's on this show doing this incredibly you know deep emotional performance in a lot of ways Um, and same with same with christian shawl and and same with you, I mean, what was that? Was it, did it feel different than other acting opportunities that you've gotten in that way? It did. I mean, the one thing about voiceover that is both like cool and and kind of strange is that a lot of times you're just recording by yourself in a booth with the director, so it feels a little disjointed from what it eventually becomes, and you kind of have faith that they'll like make it all work, but. Yeah, like a lot of it was just recording off of Raphael directing me. And it was fun because we would do the scenes together. But I didn't like have an idea of like how it would all come together in the end until later. I mean, we would do table reads and that would be a chance to see it all or hear it all at once. But but yeah, like I do this other show, The Great North for Fox and we only recently because of the pandemics have started doing group records again and still pretty remotely, like everyone's in their own place, but it is just strange how a lot of voiceover isn't like that. But then when you do do it, you're like, Oh, this 
it feels so much easier to act this way when you can. I can imagine. I mean, yeah, a lot of your scenes were with Will Arnett on the show, Mm -hmm. but yeah, but you're not actually going back and forth with him. I don't think I've ever done a single recording with him. That's very odd. I mean, is that just, (laughs) is that just logistics that dictates that? Or is it for some reason that's better to do it that way or? I think, yeah, scheduling and then, um, yeah, maybe sound quality might be easier. I think probably for Bojack, it was scheduling. He probably had, yeah, other commitments, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think when they can get everyone together, that's the dream, but a lot of times it's just too many moving pieces. And with the turnaround for the animation, it's just like, we just need to knock this out. Yeah. Well, it's impressive that when you're watching it, you would never know. And that really feels like, you know, these two characters are having a conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because when you're recording it by yourself, they'll be like, let's try it this way. They basically like want you to try it every possible way. So then they can just like have every option. <laughs> yeah. Is there a, is there a scene or moment from Bojack that stands out for you in terms of, uh, that character or what one that you really um, enjoyed or or thought was meaningful in some way? Yeah. I think there was a scene with um, Bojack and Hollyhock where she was kind of like feeling really odd or like off, like going through a real teenage low. And then she was like, this feeling goes away, right? Like it gets better. Like you, you grow up and then you don't have to deal with this anymore. And he's like, yeah, Sure. <laughs> you related to that? Yeah, yeah. I was like, hmm, that sounds like very much uh, everyone's life. Where do you go when you disappear all day? Just drive around. Sometimes I go to a bar. Sometimes I pull over by the side of the road and just sit there for hours. Why? And you'd rather do that than spend time with me. Hollyhock. I know you didn't ask for this dorky 17-year-old to just show up at your door. Then I'm sorry if I'm annoying, but no, I No, Hollyhock, for... I'm glad you're here. Oh. If I'm shitty, that's just because I'm shitty. And you're allowed to be mad at me. But you need to know that whatever I do, it's not your fault. I know. I mean, I know, but I don't always know, you know? Like, sometimes I have this tiny voice in the back of my head that goes like, hey, everyone hates you, and they're not wrong to feel that way. I know what you mean. That voice, the one that tells you you're worthless and stupid and ugly. Yeah. It goes away, right? It's just like a dumb teenage girl thing, but then it goes away. Yeah. Yeah, and now you're now you're on this show Fairview, which I think the sensibility feels pretty different from oh, BoJack yeah. uh, in a lot of ways, um, and from other stuff that you've done. I mean, uh, what was it that that appealed to you about this show, which is really kind of taking the culture war stuff, you know, head on and in, in a very intense way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's much more in a South Park direction uh, in terms of genre, and I think it. I mean, I think for me now with voiceover, it is just like fun to get to do something different than what I've done before. So it's like really just like uh, the ability to get to flex a new muscle or like try a different type of show is feels really fun. And yeah, I think tonally every show kind of has its own feel and rhythm. And like with this show, they're always like we do do big group records over Zoom and and the creators are always like bigger or louder (laughs) like it's always like needs to be more whereas with Bojack it was kind of like quieter yeah yeah, it could be yeah more subtle so it's kind of fun to just get to yeah work on that range yeah I've only seen the the first episode but I imagine that they all kind of are going to have this political um bent and yeah in the show I think they're trying to kind of be hyper topical in that way that South Park is of like taking a, a issue that's been making the rounds on social media and then like a week later you kind of see this send up of it. Hold on! As Fairview's finance director, it is my solemn duty to defend against cancel culture. I decree we keep playing the song. The song didn't imprison Instagram models on a submarine, and I think the worldly public works director who's never left this town will concur. I'm sorry, but when someone's canceled, everything they've ever done is gone. Oh no, who are we talking about? They scrubbed his name from my brain. My sweet Chelsea, town manager, please tell me you're not surrendering to the woke mob. They've torn down titans, taking Rowling, Morgan Wallen, Chris Pratt. You never hear from them unless they're promoting their projects and out there a lot. 
I mean, there, there's been this this conversation, you know, as we're talking now, um, that's been going on about comedy um, that I just wanted to ask you about, um, and it has to do with Joe Rogan, but um, <laughs> the debate over what a comedian's job is. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. Um, there was this Whitney Cummings tweet that got a lot of attention where I'll just read it for anyone who doesn't know. Comedians did not sign up to be your hero. It's our job to be irreverent and dangerous, to question authority and take you through a spooky mental haunted house so you can arrive at your own conclusions. Stay focused on the people we pay taxes to, to be moral leaders. And that was kind of her response to the uproar over Joe Rogan. Um, and you know, I don't, not asking you to like defend or or condemn Joe Rogan, but just in terms of c- comedy, and because it was she was kind of broader, like broadening it out to what a comedian's job is, and then there were a lot of jokes on Twitter about what a comedian's job is. Um, how do you think about that? Just in terms of, you know, is it is there a this responsibility to be dangerous as a comedian and and all and all of that? Well, I think what's tricky with like just being like, well, that's well, like Joe Rogan's a comedian, like it's not, he's not responsible for like, if people take him seriously or like take who he interviews seriously, because I don't think his podcast is just like brands itself as just a comedy podcast. It's not like we're definitely not yeah, shooting the shit, uh, you know, telling jokes. And also like, I think, I mean, not that you're not a comedian when you reach a certain platform, but I think to have the platform and influence and then to still say you're like questioning authority when in a way you have become an authority, it's a little dicier to just be like, he's speaking out against the mainstream when I'm like, he's reaching more people than some mainstream media. Yeah, than like pretty much yeah. all mainstream media. <laughs> yeah, so is he really like not, the, is he still an underdog? Like I would say that's questionable. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned that you're working on a book. What's uh, what's the book about and what's what's uh, going on with that? Yeah, it's a book of personal essays, a very popular format for Canadians. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, the overarching theme is imposter syndrome, which has shown up in pretty much every area of my life of like kind of kind of goes back to the self-deprecation conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, let's finally unpack that. What are you what are you learning about yourself uh, through the process? Well, writing a book is hard. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I hear that. <laughs> but it is, I mean, the kind of real kicker for for me is that nothing kind of I think when I was first like, I'll write a book about imposter syndrome and then I'll prove to myself that I really can do anything. Uh, <laughs> instead it's like, oh, you wanna write about imposter syndrome that is the one way to make your imposter syndrome really, really loud. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it should be, I'm I'm excited to read it though. It sounds, sounds good. Yeah. If nothing else, (laughs) it will be like a philosophical uh, thought experiment. So uh, we end uh, the episode with the segment, the first laugh. Um, So I'm going to ask you about some firsts in your career as they pertain to comedy. Um, So, Going all the way back, do you remember the first piece of comedy that really made you laugh as a kid? Something that that really uh, you really connected with um, from an early age. I mean, I think I think if I'm going way back, I would say I really was into like the Sesame Street Muppets. I just oh, yeah. thought they were all <laughs> very funny, really killing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny? I mean, I would say it was later in life. Like I definitely liked being silly and like joking around when I was a kid, but I didn't necessarily know I was funny just because I was really shy. Maybe like the first time someone else told me that was in maybe middle school or high school. I think someone was like, oh, you always say kind of like funny little things under your breath. And like, (laughs) you don't, if you don't hear them, like you won't realize it, but but I've noticed they're all very funny. So I was like, oh, interesting. That's a good compliment. Yeah, I know. I was like, oh, man, I didn't even realize <laughs> I was saying. Um, how did you how did you start doing uh, stand up? And can you talk about your very first time performing uh, on stage? Yeah, I I performed at like a Best Western that was right off the freeway in <laughs> uh, Northern Virginia. Um, that's, I, I hear, that's the best place for comedy, Best oh, Westerns, sure. I think. Yeah, yeah, you got to have at least 30% truckers in the audience, I think. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, another friend of mine from high school, we were both home from college. It was like our first summer back. And 
we both, he had given me like some Mitch Hedberg CDs. He was like already pretty interested in comedy. And he was like, I think I'm going to try this like open mic. Like, do you want, do you think you would want to try it? And we both kind of made a pact that we would each go up at least once that summer. And I think I waited till like the last possible week <laughs> before I had to go back to school. But I, I think it was exactly the open mic was on my 20th birthday and I did a set. And it went better than I expected. I really like did not know what to expect. And and then as you do, when you like have a good experience with something you try for the first time, I then did not do it again for four years. <laughs> and then, like, yeah, I think I was like, it was like really stretching out that high from that first set. Um, but yeah, then I graduated from college and I was like, okay, if you really want to, I mean, maybe I did like a coffee house student coffee house or something in college once or twice, but really I didn't start pursuing it till after I graduated. Um, do you remember early on the first joke that, that really worked that you could, uh, that you could use and go back to and that you feel like, uh, you know, really connected with an audience? I remember, I think this was in my first set even, but, uh, maybe it got revised a bit over time, but I think it was like something about, have you ever walked into a public restroom and thought, there's a story there. <laughs> like, look into the <laughs> stall. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Uh, uh, I always love asking comedians about their late night stand-up debuts. You know, you mentioned that you know late night used to be probably a bigger deal than it than it is uh, for this generation. Um, but I imagine it was still a pretty big deal when you did Conan uh, for the first mm -hmm. time in 2013, I believe. Um, so, what do you remember about that experience? Uh, you know, how it went, how you felt uh, during, after all of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I was. It felt pretty hard to fathom at the time. I think generally when I've had to tape stuff for stand-up, I can't fully comprehend like the gravity of it until after it's over or I'll just like psych myself out. But I do think I felt good about like the set I had because I had just done the Just for Laughs Montreal Festival and it was like sort of an edit of a version of like the set I had done there. So I felt like good about those jokes. Um but I think what was weirder about that whole experience, because um, it was like a lovely first late night set, but was that uh, my friend Hari and I from Totally Bias, like after the fact, we realized that I think I was like the first South Asian woman to do a late night set, which I didn't realize going into it. Yeah, it does. I was like, there's no way. But then, yeah, we couldn't come up with anyone else after the fact. And so I think cool. that was the weirder <laughs> takeaway that I was like, oh, man, I didn't realize this was like a historical set. It's OK. I'm surprised I'm a comedian, too. <laughs> uh, we'll get through this together. It'll be a team effort. I, uh, I was walking on the street recently. We're not that different, you and I. And... Uh, a black guy with a mohawk was coming down the street this way, complimented a white guy with a mohawk going the other way. Yeah. So I made a wish. I was like, I know how miracles work. I've been around. Probably one of the most influential moments in my life, right up there with when I realized any pizza can be a personal one if you cry while you eat it. Do you have a most memorable audition story, um, either good Ooh. or bad, from, uh, from any of the Dang. auditions that you've done over the years? I mean, there are, there are definitely some doozies. The one that I think still haunts me for whatever reason and it wasn't even that they were particularly mean or cold but it was like for a horror movie and I just remember you just like one of the scenes was like more dialogue but then the second scene was just this character getting attacked by like zombie squirrels <laughs> so you just had to like pretend mime, yeah, yeah mime that and then like end you know screaming on the ground and yeah, auditioning is already pretty undignified a lot of the times, but just to like be like, I'm going to give you my best version of being attacked by kill killer squirrels and then we're both going <laughs> to go about our afternoons. I was kind of like, what are what are we doing here? You, you didn't get that one? I didn't get it, believe it or not. <laughs> um, do you have a, a story about 
the first time you met a comedy hero, um, someone who you really looked up to in the comedy world uh, and what it was like to meet them for the first time? Yeah, I think actually, speaking of Paul F. Tompkins, he was one of the first people I got to open for when I started comedy in D.C. um, at this venue called The Draft House, where they would bring a lot of headliners through on the weekends. Um, And yeah, I got to open for him and he was just so kind and and like encouraging. And I think I really it really stuck with me because I do feel like of all the people I've met, like going forward, like Maria Bamford, Eugene Merman, where I got to open for them. Also, when I started, like they were all just like so kind and like laid back that I think it also just affirmed to me that like, oh, comedians, like even when they get successful, like they're still just like pretty grounded and like accessible people, uh, which I found like somehow just comforting or like, yeah, it made comedy seem like a less scary place. Mm, Yeah. And then finally, I like to give comedians a chance to shout out other comedy that is making them laugh right now. So what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? Or you can name a few things or just anything that you uh, have been enjoying yeah, recently. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm alone in uh, really responding to, I think you should leave with Tim Robinson, like my partner and I quote that <laughs> to each other quite Fantastic. frequently. Yeah, so good. Um, my friend, uh, Joe Firestone is always up to like all kinds of like unique and fun. She's so good. Yeah. She's so good. And her last thing she put, uh, she teaches a comedy class for seniors and she did a special on Peacock, uh, detailing, like putting together a show that they did. Highly recommend that. Yeah, it's really funny. Yeah. Good, good timing, right? Is that what it's called? Good timing. Yes. Yes, exactly. And then. Um, I know you already had her on the show, but I'm going to go ahead and give Naomi's Netflix standups another shout. It really if anyone is listening to this and still has not watched that, I don't know what they're, what they're thinking. Yeah. Last chance, guys, to get on the bus <laughs> before it pulls away. Um, well, Aparna, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I know I feel less anxious now than I did at the beginning <laughs> okay. of our conversations. <laughs> I'm um, so glad. So something works. I don't know. Okay. But yeah, uh, I've, I've enjoyed your comedy for such a long time. So uh, this was this was a lot of fun for me. Oh, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you again to Aparna Nantrala for being my guest on today's show. You can watch Fairview Wednesday nights at 8.30 p.m. on Comedy Central and streaming on Paramount+. And if you haven't seen Aparna's half-hour special on Netflix's The Stand-Ups, I definitely recommend you check that out as well. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.